All right. So if you didn't get a packet when you came in, there's one on each of those music stands at the entryway. You can go ahead and do that. If you're online, obviously, hopefully you, you printed that off um, at home. We uh, are continuing our study through, really through Israel's history. And let me just kind of back up to kind of talk about what we typically do on Wednesday night. And hopefully it's a little bit different. Um, Sunday morning, largely, like if we were to just have the whole schedule opened up for us, uh, the way I kind of think about things is Sunday morning is that we're used to coming to now. 1030 is normally our time of worship where we just praise the Lord and sing together and pray and read scripture and things like that together. Um, the Wednesday night hour typically is more of an education hour where we're trying to understand, wrap our minds around who God is. So all of this started when I first got here with really kind of a dive into somewhat of a systematic theology where we were uh, going through step by step, who is God, first of all, who are we, um, how, do, how do we know we can trust this word that we're reading, things like that, the, the inerrancy and fallibility of scriptures and all of that. And that led us into uh, the history of God's salvation of his people. And so in order to do that, we really have to look at the sort of the story arc, if you will, of Scripture as a whole. And so the purpose of Wednesday night really is to come to this, the text of Scripture. Sometimes we cover multiple chapters in a night. Sometimes we cover one small section in a night. It just it varies. But the idea is to not only just read the text, but also understand the historical setting that it falls in, the context of other surrounding nations that play into this or the political context that this play that plays into this. Um, sometimes we dive into archaeology, things that are significant in archaeology from, from that perspective. The goal really is to understand the scriptures and what God, what the author of scripture is really uh, helping us to see about God so that our worship on Sunday, which is really the pinnacle, that's what we're aiming for always, but that our worship on Sunday is benefited by a deeper understanding and knowledge of who God is. So it's kind of Wednesday night, and typically we have a um, building blocks hour before service, which we're coming back to in a few weeks, um, where we is, is also kind of an education where we will actually have classes that you choose from. So um, that will hopefully be opening up soon, but uh, and we'll be coming back to that. So really kind of two education hours and then uh, one worship hour is the idea of, of, our, of our schedule. And so um, we've been going through Israel's history. We're now in the book of 1 Kings, and we're in 1 uh, Kings. We finished 18 last week, and I'm just going to touch on that tonight. And then we're really going into 19, which is a really famous passage where uh, Elijah runs, flees from Jezebel. And there's lots, there's tons of interesting things about this chapter and way more than I could even say in one night. Um, but my, my goal tonight is not so much to just talk devotionally about, um, about what Elijah goes through, like you might hear in a sermon, but more to talk about what is Elijah really doing? What is he doing here in this story? Because there's, there's, there's much uh, more to it probably than meets the eye, I think. And then how this plays into the story of Scripture as a whole. You'll remember last week that, um, that Ahab had accused Elijah of being the, the troubler of Israel, if you remember that. And the troubler of Israel kind of goes all the way back to Joshua's day when they had conquered Jericho, and they're leaving Jericho, and they're going to fight in the, the city of Ai, and they're going to conquer the city of Ai. And they, they go up to the city, and they you know, kind of devise this sort of military strategy that's really ill-conceived, actually. And they end up getting whooped right there in the city of Ai. And they're not, they're not thinking that's even a possibility at this point. And so Joshua kind of pulls everybody back and is, is like, why on earth would we get beat when we have the Lord on our side? And they find out that there is a troubler of Israel in their midst. And that troubler is one who has sinned and who has brought the, the Lord's judgment upon them because of his sin. Well, when Elijah goes to meet Ahab and confront him, remember he's, he's confronted him three years prior, and he's told him, uh, Ahab, it's going to be a drought for 
three plus years in the land of Israel. And Ahab is really perplexed by this. And so for three years, there's this drought to the point where the livestock are starting to die. And Ahab's having to send all his people out hitherto and yon to find water for his livestock and all of this. And so Elijah finally gets word from the Lord that the drought is coming to an end and he needs to confront Ahab. And so when he does confront Ahab, Ahab identifies Elijah as the troubler of Israel, the one who's brought this pain and this famine upon the nation. And so Elijah is quick to say, no, 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 you're misunderstanding. I'm not the troubler of Israel. You're the troubler of Israel. You're the one who has brought the nation into the worship of pagan gods. You've, you've brought the whole nation into the worship of Baal. And, and because of that, God has brought a drought on you. Uh, Ahab thinks about it the other way around. That Baal, or Baal, is the real God, and Elijah is the one troubling Baal. Elijah's bringing in this uh, Elohim, or Yahweh. He's bringing in this foreign God who is... He's, he's the one, and, and Baal, who controls the rain, is now mad at Elijah and has withheld the rain. And so he calls him the troubler of Israel. And so what results of all of that is Elijah says, there's going to be a showdown on Mount Carmel between your God and mine. And we're going to see who really is the troubler of Israel. Who's the one that's causing this famine on Israel? And if it is, and Elijah even admits, look, if, it, if it's Baal that's true, then we'll worship him. But if he's not, then you worship God. And so they go to Mount Carmel, and there's this sort of you know altercation between them where the prophets of Baal uh, construct this altar, and they, they uh, pray all day, and they do all of these chants all day long. They cut themselves, they bleed all over the altar. They do everything that they possibly can to evoke this false god to action. And the result is absolutely nothing. Not one thing. In fact, the text even very clearly states no answer, no voice, no response. Nothing transpired. And Elijah's situation is quite the opposite. He soaks the altar, but probably the most telling thing about it is he simply steps before the altar and just prays a short, very simple prayer at the time when the sacrifice was to be given. And boom, altar lights on fire and is consumed. All the water is consumed. The water in the trench is licked up. Everything is consumed. And at the end of it all, what does Ahab have to do? Eat the sacrifice, right? Which is probably the most humiliating admittance of defeat possible as he has to go eat it. And so... Um, then what does Elijah do with the prophets of Baal? He takes them and he has them all slaughtered. Why? Because just like Achan in the book of Joshua, they are considered to be the troublers of Israel, the ones leading them into, into this pagan religion. And so as a result, they have to be killed because they're the ones bringing about trouble, just like Achan and his family were stoned um, as a result of their sin. And so that has been resolved. However, I want you to see a couple of things as we, as we go into tonight. First, um, let me make sure this works. Oh, I, I forgot to go through the review slide. Sorry, that's okay. Um, there we go. So Yahweh wins this decisive victory up on Mount Carmel um, at the, through the voice of his prophet. And what, what happens with the people, but that they're forced to say, the Lord is God. Uh, and we talked about this last week a little bit, but the people of Israel, uh, they, they kind of are on the fence, and Elijah sort of gives them that a little bit. He tells them, you're on the fence. You're kind of wishy-washy about who is God. You're not really sure. But really, they are active participants in the worship of Baal. And so they continually are worshiping, and they they followed Ahab in his leading them astray. And so... In front of all of their faces, God has proven that He is God, and so they bow down and they worship Him, and they say, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God. And as a result then, when Elijah is about to leave, he tells the people, take the prophets, seize them. There's 450 of them, so all the people you know, overpowered them essentially, 
took them down to the brook and, and slaughtered them right there, killed them. And that's significant because it seems like from Elijah's perspective that a lot of the people are repentant about their worship of idols, right? I mean, it would seem that way. You would think that uh, because they've seen what God has done to the altar that, yeah, they're sorry about worshiping Baal and they're ready to now worship. They've even confessed with their mouth, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God. However, we're going to see tonight, it changes nothing for the nation. Absolutely nothing. Not one thing changes at all in the nation's demeanor or response after that. They're just as lost as they always were, and there's one big reason why. See, um, the chief architect of worship of Baal in the nation is Jezebel. Jezebel is sort of the, uh, maybe you might, you might say the, the puppet master of the whole thing. And Ahab is depicted as a weak, weak man. Uh, absolutely and totally weak. So weak, in fact, that when he is on Mount Carmel, he does everything that Elijah tells him to, to the extent that he actually eats the sacrifice that was burned up on the altar. And we see even in the passage of last week, he says nothing. He's, his voice is almost completely and totally absent from the whole scene. It says a couple of things here and there, but that's it. Does it say hardly anything? And yet, uh, he goes home after doing all of that. He goes home, and the first thing he does is he tells his wife all that took place. And we know that Jezebel is the chief architect of this whole thing, of these anti-Yahweh policies that, that have been enacted for a couple of reasons. If you look at your verse packet here, all your verses that we're going to cover tonight should be on the back of your handout there, or toward the back of your handout. Uh, the First Kings 18.4 says, And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties, in uh in in uh with and fed them with bread and water hid them by 50s in a cave and fed them with bread and water and then first kings 19:1 Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword so Jezebel does not like that now remember though Jezebel had the opportunity Elijah offered her the opportunity to send her prophets of Asherah to the to Mount Carmel, and apparently she declined. We're not told why in the text at all. All we're told is that 450 of the prophets of Baal showed up, but the 400 prophets of Asherah did not show up. And so we don't know why, but obviously she declined. Perhaps it's because yeah, it's 450 to 1. How hard could this be? You don't need 850 to 1. 450 to 1 is fine. So I don't know if that's why, but that seems to be a logical reason. But for whatever reason, she declines the invitation to the standoff at Carmel. And so when Ahab gets home, he tells you, you're not going to believe what Elijah did to us while we were up there. Not only did he make me eat the sacrifice, but then he killed all the prophets of Baal. And, oh, she loves that, right? Not at all. She's livid about that. And so she reaches out to uh, Elijah. She says, uh, you know, I don't like what you did, and we need to talk. Except that's not exactly what she says. Look at 1 Kings 19, 2-3. says, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So uh, Jezebel is none too happy. Ironically, we read this, and it, there, there's this, this whole passage, there's so many different layers to it of what's going on, obviously. And I'm sure you've heard probably a, a million sermons in your life on this particular chapter. 
Um, the irony that should hit us in the face here is Jezebel is invoking the power of her gods to do to her uh, what, she, what he did to the prophets of Baal if she doesn't kill him. And so the, the irony of that is, I don't think your gods are actually going to do anything to you <laughs> because uh, the, your gods have proven to be impotent. They, they're incapable of action. And, uh, but but the, the proclamation, the edict that goes out from Jezebel is enough to strike fear into the heart of Elijah, so much so that he flees, that he runs. Um, to head somewhere else. And so Elijah is going to take off and he's going to leave Carmel. And he, he had actually been in Jezreel. Remember he, uh, Jezreel, and I'm going to show you a map in just a minute so that we'll have our geography uh, down when we, when we think through this. But Jezreel is 17 miles-ish from Mount Carmel toward the northern end of the nation of Israel. So if you're, you're picturing the Mediterranean Sea on your left, um, the Sea of Galilee up in the north on your right. Uh, Mount Carmel is right by the Mediterranean Sea up in the northern region on that same, is that a latitudinal level, I think, if I remember my third grade geography here. Flatitude, right? <laughs> um, but uh, so Mount Carmel is, is up there and Jezreel is just toward the base of that mountain and he's going to flee all the way down south to the Negev, which is all the way down in Judah and he's going to go even further beyond that. Uh, down into Beersheba, and um, he's exhausted, and he's frustrated. Just imagine for a second uh, the amount of frustration that would be on your heart if you had just gone from a literal mountaintop experience and a spiritual mountaintop experience to the queen of the land threatening you. How much more convincing does someone need than to watch a prophet say, Lord, will you bring fire down from heaven? And immediately he does it. How much more convincing does one need? You would think, right? I think our tendency probably as we look at like things like the Gospels, let's say, um, is we watch Jesus walk through the area around Galilee and do all of these miraculous things, walk on water, heal the blind and the deaf and you know, raise the dead and heal the sick and all of these amazing things that he does. And we see people that still don't believe. And I think our tendency as we read the New Testament particularly is to go, how can you not believe? Didn't you just see that guy who was blind and now he can see? How is it that you sit there in your unbelief? Shouldn't that be enough to convert you at, at that moment? And as it turns out, the heart is not persuaded that way. And the heart is persuaded by the Spirit of God himself. And that's it. That's what opens the eyes of the blind. And so people that exist in blindness are going to exist in blindness unless God does something, a miraculous work of rebirth on their heart right? Well, imagine the experience for Elijah when the sacrifice is consumed and the people that are all there witness it and they say, Yahweh is God. That's it. And to the point in their repentance where they killed all the, prop, the troublemakers in Israel, they slaughtered them right there. That seems to be repentance. Yet, in the end, it has zero effect because the king himself is not persuaded. So what Elijah understands all too well is that just as Israel was going to be led astray or was led astray by the king to begin with, or the queen as it were, the fact that she still is unpersuaded by what has taken place on Carmel means that how long is it going to take before the people who have said this on the mountain are going to go down and then flee to disobedience? You remember the children of Israel? They come out of Egypt. And the Egyptians are chasing them out. And they get to the Red Sea. And the, it, the Egyptians are pressing in close behind them. And Moses, they're panicking. And Moses cries out to the Lord. And he parts the waters. They walk across. And Pharaoh, not only that, which is, imp, which is amazing in and of itself. But then last, 
last guy gets his sandal right out of the banks of the Red Sea and the water comes crashing in on all of Pharaoh's army and they're, they're drowning in the Red Sea. And then it's not 40 days before Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and the people make a golden calf at the base. Not just the people. Aaron! <laughs> Aaron makes a golden calf. Well, he said what happened was that he just threw some gold in there and out popped the calf. But you get the idea. He, he, he made the calf. And all of the people are fleeing back to idolatry. So what are the chances that Elijah, that all the people are going to be persuaded and follow Elijah when the king and queen themselves are not persuaded and are going to put Elijah to death? Uh, the chances are zero. And he's facing this disobedient people. The people who are, are filled with such disobedience and hard-heartedness that the entire nation of Israel is gone, so he thinks. And so he's running in part. He's obviously scared of what she's said and that he's gonna, she's going to kill him. But also he put, puts no trust in the fact that he's going to live, that the people are going to leave him alone. I mean, the people are going to consume him too. So he flees and he runs down and he finds some sh- uh, shelter. Let's, let's um, uh, well, before we read that, he, he finds some shelter under a little tree and he sort of passes out and uh, is just given up in despair and he's figuring it's going to end in death. And so let's look at that in 1 Kings 19, or 19, 4 to 18. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Um, now, hold, hold on right there. Let, let's take just a step back. Um, he understand what, what Elijah is saying here. So, you can read this whole passage a couple of different ways. And I think we tend to see here Elijah is, um, is falling as a prophet, that he's stumbling, he's l- losing faith. And I don't think that's what Elijah is doing. I think he is, he's actually, he's, he's got a plan, a strategy here. And so he goes underneath this tree and he, what he's crying out to the Lord is that the Lord would uh, leave him to what has happened to the prophets that came before. They were ignored, they were killed, they were scorned, whatever. And he's saying, I'm no better than they are. So I, I've been up on top of the mountain and I've called down fire from heaven and still these people remain unpersuaded. And so as a result, I'm no better than Moses, who is before me, the people are just as stubborn as they were then. I'm no better than, name it, Joshua. I, I'm, I'm no better than any of them that came before. So I'm the same as they, you might as well take me now. And so he laid down and slept under this broom tree, which is just a, a low-hanging shade tree, but it provides a good bit of shade. Um, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, uh, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. Um, I think he's, this angel is, uh, the angel of the Lord is tracking with Elijah here and knows what he's doing. And he arose and ate and drank and he went in strength, in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. You, you know Horeb. It's uh, also referred to in the Bible as Mount Sinai. You've heard of Mount Sinai? A little bit of a famous mountain, okay? You remember what happened at Mount Sinai? Children of Israel coming out of Egypt, they go straight down to Sinai. They spend a year there at Sinai. It's where all those significant things in Israel's history happens. Moses gets the, the tablets from the Lord the first time, breaks them, gets them the second time from the Lord, and they are his kind of the covenant. The Mosaic covenant is established there at Sinai. God's people are established there at Sinai. God's presence is there at, at Sinai. And so um, 
Moses had met with God nearly 600 years prior at Mount Sinai. And Elijah is on his way back there. Now, that's significant. Okay, we should really kind of think about that for just a second. Why would Elijah head all the way back to Sinai? Now, this is, so this is the trek here. Let me get my little handy-dandy laser pointer. For all you people at home, you can't see my laser pointer, and it's too bad you can't, but, you know, there it is. So Mount Carmel is up here. Um, Jezreel is right down here. And so you can see where the green line ends. That's Jezreel. And then, oh, look, we got a little mouse following us right there. Look at that. And then all the way down, here's Beersheba. This is where he stops under the little broom tree. And then he goes all the way down to Sinai, which is in Arabia, right down here to the base. Okay? So that's his journey. All right. Um, so just so you've got your geography kind of lined up there. Now, at Sinai, Elijah is going to go down there similar to Moses, and he is going to uh, stand before the Lord, more or less, on behalf of the people of Israel. Okay, but What Elijah does is completely the opposite of what Moses does. And that's his intention. He is going down there to make a case to the Lord concerning the people of Israel. And I want you to see that. Elijah is going to act as a representative of Israel. Okay, now here's the reason that I say this is because sometimes this passage can be taken a couple of different ways. One way that is frequently preached is that Elijah is, um, is so scared that he is fleeing from his obligations and his obligations were to the north, to Israel. Remember, Israel is divided into two nations at this point. You have Judah in the south, which is comprised of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And then the other 10 tribes are in the north, and they form the northern kingdom that we call Israel. Um, so Israel's in the north, divided kingdom, Judah in the south. And Elijah is really appointed to go and speak to Ahab, who is a king in the north. The, the north is notoriously idolatrous. Um, not really a king in the north that's going to be great. Jehu's coming and he's okay, but he's not going to be great, all right? And the kings in the south are hit or miss, miss more frequently than they hit, okay? So, but the south is going to be the, predominantly the, 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 uh, the legitimate kingdom, and, but Elijah is, is appointed to the north. And sometimes people read this passage and they say, Elijah has fled from the north and he's fled from his obligations and God is coming here to correct him and to send him back to the north. And I don't think that's what's happening in the text. Let's look at, uh, let's look at the rest of the passage here. Um, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. So he's gone down to Horeb, the Mount of God. He, he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great, uh, in a great uh, and strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, 
you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. And yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. All right, so Elijah comes down to the mountain where it all began. Uh, you've probably seen movies where stuff like this happens, where the hero goes back to the place where it all started and sort of gets some perspective. Elijah's not here getting perspective. He's here pleading a case before the Lord. He's making a covenant argument to the Lord as his prophet. So um, uh, he, the uh, blank, let me go back to the, the worksheet here. Elijah is not at Sinai to vent but to exercise the privilege of the prophet. Um, a prophet, as we've talked about for many weeks now, a prophet is, um, is not only a mouthpiece of God, he's someone who actually has the words of God in his mouth, um, that he could stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. And what he speaks is 100% the thoughts of what the Lord intended him to speak and can say that with authority. Um, and so, and that's a unique position, but as such, he also has a unique place in sort of the council of God. Many years ago, we talked about, I say many years ago, it hadn't been that long, but it's been a while back. We talked about the council of God and uh, where we see that pop up in scriptures and Job and Psalms, it, it pops up. Um, where the Lord has counsel. And we uh, talked about there where the, the Lord, though he is sovereign and he reigns over it all, he has chosen to delegate authority to uh, beings. And in, in some cases, we see angels playing a role in that. And in other places, we see mankind, right? He created mankind in his image to, to rule in his stead on earth, to have dominion. And so the prophet has a position like that, where God has brought him into a kind of a governing type council. And so as such, the prophet has a privileged position to be able to stand before Yahweh in his council and tell him or basically say to him, plead the, his case, as it were. Moses does this back in uh, coming out of, of Egypt. He stands before the people. Remember, the people create the golden calf, and he comes down the mountain, and he's so mad about it that he breaks the tablets. And God is mad about it and tells him that he's going to step out of my way. I'm going to consume all of these people. And that's when Moses as the position, has the position of the prophet to intercede on behalf of the people and plead the case and stand in front of God and say, please don't do that. Elijah is taking a similar stance in that he's pleading before the Lord, but he's not pleading that the Lord would not act. He's now pleading that the Lord would act. And in this case, that he would consume them, essentially. That his covenant, they've broken your covenant. They've killed all the prophets. They are worthless. Absolutely worthless. Now, Elijah is saying that as a man, okay? He is saying that as a human being who is finite and fallen, and he's a, he a prophet, but he obviously does not know all. Right? That has not been given to him. And so he is, he's not speaking truthfully. But part of the reason we know that, he, that God is not correcting him is because in the passage, God doesn't correct him. God actually agrees with him. See that in the passage? God actually agrees with him. He is going to do what is implied by what Elijah says. So Elijah is bringing evidence for the prosecution of the nation of Israel. Here's the evidence you need. They've killed your prophets. They will not listen. So Elijah is, is the prosecuting attorney for the, against the nation of Israel. He's pleading against the nation of Israel. So, 
Uh, like Moses, Elijah meets with God on Sinai while Israel is engaged in idolatry. But unlike Moses, Elijah does not intercede for Israel, but instead formally accuses Israel. Look at Romans 11.2. Paul is going to cite some significant portions of Scripture from uh, this, this passage. But I wanted to draw your attention to one thing in particular. Um, what he, how Paul understands what Elijah is doing there on Mount Sinai. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. This is what Elijah is doing here. This is why he left. Yes, he's afraid that everyone's going to kill him. But he's not going down to Sinai in fear as much as he is going down to Sinai to plead a case that the Lord must act. You must go and avenge your name. You must go and strike them down. And so notice that Yahweh does not rebuke Elijah for his loss of confidence, but concurs with Elijah's accusation and gives him three tasks that he must complete to overthrow Ahab's house. This is what Elijah is coming to do. He's coming to say, Lord, here's what you've got to do. You have to strike down the house of Ahab. It's over. These people do not listen. You have to strike them down. And so what the instructions that God gives to, to Elijah is to go appoint three leaders for the nation of Israel. And through those three leaders, he is going to strike down the house of Ahab. But what, I, what Elijah does not know is that there are 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal and have not kissed the ring. And God, in the rubble that is Israel, God is going to raise up from the rubble a nation that hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. And Jehu is going to represent that. Now, we're not going to get to that until like Second Kings, but... Essentially, Jehu is going to be the one that represents some of that. Now, he's not totally righteous, and he's still pretty wicked, but he does do some things that are right. And he does come against the house of Baal, and he does strike it to the ground and make it essentially rubble. He destroys the pagan worship, and from the rubble of the pagan worship rises from the ashes a remnant of the nation of Israel that is devoted to the worship of Yahweh and not the worship of Baal. Elijah, in his short-sightedness, doesn't see that. But still what he's doing is making a case of what God needs to do here. So um, Moses speaks to God after a first covenant is breached, and he persuades Yahweh to show mercy and renew the covenant but as a new Moses, Elijah is also the mediator of a new covenant of sorts anyway. Um, Yahweh no longer intends to call the house of Ahab back from the brink, but to take down the house of Ahab. So here, here's what's, what's going on in this whole scene, is that the people of, of Israel on the, in the northern kingdom bow down and they say Yahweh is God, and it gives an opportunity that... that Ahab can see his people worshiping God, that he can go back and he can lead reform and he can lead the nation into repentance. In other words, they still have a chance. But at the point where Jezebel reaches out and says, I'm going to kill you, the chance is over. And there is a point where, his, where God's patience runs out. And Elijah is making the case that that time is now. Your patience should be done. And so, the renewal of Israel will begin with a community within Israel centered not on the king or the temple, but on the prophet uh, and the remnant that has not bowed the knee to Baal. So there's a remnant. And this remnant is the blank. I want to move on. Now, the reason that I think this is incredibly important for us is that in the New Testament, Paul is describes himself and sees his ministry similar 
to Elijah and has this sort of Elijah model for how he thinks about what Christ has brought to the nation of Israel and what he has brought to the world in general. Um, and if you notice, Elijah is making this trip all the way down to Sinai and then back up to Damascus, where he's told to go is to Damascus to anoint um, this king of Damascus, um, Hazael of Damascus. And uh, Paul, we get the description after his salvation, after his conversion, he doesn't go up to Jerusalem. Um, he says in Galatians 1.17, he went down into Arabia, and then he returned again to Damascus. But um, so there's this sort of pattern that's already established even in Paul's ministry of this sort of uh, kind of Elijah task that he's got going on. But in Paul's day, there is Israel faces a, a similar future. Um, there is a looming judgment that hangs over the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus prophesied about this. We know that this is coming. There is going to be a destruction of the temple in 70 AD where the Roman army is going to march in and they're going to surround the, the city of Jerusalem. They're going to basically starve the people for a, long, a lengthy period of time. And they're going to move into the city and they are going to tear it apart and burn it to the ground uh, to the point where they kill the estimation uh, for back in those days, I think it was um, a million people, I think were, were victims in that. Um, massacre in in total is the estimation anyway um, the temple is burnt to the ground the no stone upon the temple mount is left un, unturned and um, I mean it, it was a horrific scene and Jesus has prophesied about this in Matthew 24 he talks about it in detail and we'll get to that in a few weeks it's probably gonna be a number of weeks before we get there in on Sunday morning um, he talks about it in several places in the Gospels in that same scene where he prepares the disciples that this is going to happen. And when you see this happening, you need to run because it's going to be awful. Um, and so the apostles know that this is coming. They know some sort of judgment of an invading army is coming as a sign that God's patience for the Jewish religious order has expired and um, that it's, it's coming to an end. And so in Romans 11, um, Paul is, um, is thinking about this, and he kind of uses uh, uh, Elijah's situation as a parallel to what is going on now, because there are some significant questions as to, that people might have as to what has happened to the Jews. Um, but in the midst of this whole crisis that's going to take place, um, Paul knows from Old Testament precedents uh, that uh, the Lord is going to bring a new people, a remnant out of the ruins of the old, and he will rise a new Israel from the dead, a new Israel which is neither Jew nor Greek, is, a, um, is he says, one new man. Um, and now we see some of this, but, but Paul is going to actually quote from Elijah's story here in 1 Kings 19, in Romans 11, and he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So Paul is taking Elijah's story and seeing his own ministry as very similar to Elijah's. He is preaching the gospel of Christ. And what is going to happen, but that God is going to judge the nation of Israel by its destruction, the destruction of its religious system, its temple is coming to the ground. We talked several weeks ago about the significance of the temple and how there's a sort of a, I think the, the, Metaphor we use is like a portal from heaven to earth where man actually can convene, uh, meet with God in his physical presence. And since sin, that, that wasn't a, the case, but the tabernacle and the temple brought that. So when that comes to crashing to the ground, can you imagine what the significance of that is? To watch it turn to rubble in front of your eyes? If you didn't believe in Jesus, you didn't even know anything about it. 
but you knew the significance of the temple to watch it turn to dust in front of you. Can you imagine that feeling? That's, that's where we convene with the God of the universe and it just comes to rubble. Now, what does it say that God allows this to take place? Think about that for just a second. What, what does it say? that this, We thought this was a place where God met with us. And, and you know, we're, we're going to talk about this many, probably years into the future when we actually get to that intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament when Antiochus Epiphanes walks into the Holy of Holies and sacrifices a pig on the altar. And nothing happens to him. Can you imagine the people of Israel, what they must feel at that moment? Not that what we believe is false but that God is judging us. This is judgment that has fallen down in the house of Israel. They're seeing that. Paul is anticipating this. And he's saying, no, 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 wait. Remember what happened in Elijah's day? Remember how there was a, he was really frustrated and he pled to the Lord against Israel. He said, you've got to do something about this. And God judged Israel. That's what's coming to the mind of everyone that's reading this. God judged Israel. But there is a remnant. Rising from the ashes of the dust of the judgment comes a group of people that are God's people who have not bowed the knee to Baal, or in this case, to hypocrisy, to showmanship, to false worship but are truly born of the Spirit and are truly people of God. And Paul sees the ministry that he's bringing about as establishing Israel proper, true and rightful Israel, whose hearts are changed and renewed and who are made up of believing Jew and believing Gentile coming together to make one new man. Questions? either at home or to the thousands in attendance, the millions watching around the world? Any questions? Doug's got his hand up. I see. I, I, okay, Doug, go ahead. You're just ignoring me, Michael. <laughs> yeah, it, you were like that big on the back screen. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Once I, I saw you, there, then I could see here. this happening. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. so uh, this is a very interesting story. And it seems to me that Moses and Elijah are so different. Uh, and even their similarities, like you pointed out, but Moses was in a position where the people were going to stone him several times. And, yeah. and they just really disobeyed God. And God said, I'm going to destroy them. And I'm going to give you a new people. And Moses intervenes for them, like you said. But Moses, you can just see Moses stuttering. And when you read the text in Exodus, He's just gasping. He's so broken up. And he says, um, he says, don't do this. And if, if not, if you are, then blot me out. He's willing to give his life for the people's life. In the case of Elijah, um, it, it's amazing to me. And, and um, it's amazing to me, the great thing that God had done there. And then Elijah, it seems to me, is afraid of Jezebel. He just he says, first of all, he said, after he flees, he says, just kill me. It reminded me of um, Jonah, actually, where mm -hmm. God had, had saved Nineveh, and Jonah goes out the side, side of the city, and he's kind of thinking, well, um, God's going to destroy them, but maybe not me. And then afterwards, he says, I was reluctant because I knew you had would have mercy on them. And so... Um, Elijah says, well, I want to die, basically. And then he's almost like he's feeling sorry for himself, I think. And then he says, but I'm the only one. It's like, well, there's nobody else. And God says, well, yeah, there is. There are uh, 7,000 other people. Right. And I see a very different character between Moses, who was a great leader, and Elijah, who I don't think he has those kinds of leadership skills. He's a great prophet. <laughs> but he's not a somebody who would be willing to sacrifice his life for the people, I don't think. Yeah. Um, what is interesting, though, is that Elijah's pleading to God to, to judge, and God judges. God is, God's, God's not going to say to Elijah, well, 
Um, no, you're short-sighted. Look, there's 7,000. Go back up north like Jeremiah or, um, or even Paul in Corinth where Paul is like about to leave and he says, no, 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 wait. I've got plenty more in this city. Stay here for a little while. Uh, God doesn't say that to Elijah. He actually agrees with Elijah and goes, let's go. Go appoint Elisha. And then Elisha is actually going to end up appointing the other two kings. And from that, the sword is going to come to Israel and the entire house of Ahab is going to come crashing down. But the house of Ahab wasn't a true Israel. The house of Ahab was in rebellion against Israel. And God has saved the remnant, like you said. God God has always saved the remnant. Right. Um, Yes. Yeah, good. Other questions? I don't know. You um, you kind of briefly went over Haziel and, and Jehu. Do, do they know what they're to do? I mean, have they been commanded to do this? Uh, Hazel and Jehu uh, don't know anything yet. And we won't really get to Hazel and Jehu until 2 Kings. And okay. uh, Elijah is going to, Elijah is just now told that he needs to go anoint them. And what we're going to see in the next, the very next paragraph is Elijah going to anoint Elisha, the prophet to succeed him. And Elisha is going to spend a little bit of time with Elijah and get to know him and understand what it means to be a prophet. And then Elisha is going to take over and Elisha is actually going to be the one to go anoint these two kings and they know nothing yet. So uh, that's part, partly the reason why I just briefly touched on them because we're going to deal with them extensively uh, as, as we get there in the text. But okay. yeah. So Ma- Michael, do you do not think there's any relationship between Elijah's behavior and the fact that God is going to pull the mantle from Elijah and give it to Elisha? I don't. Okay. No. I think Elijah is coming to the end of his ministry and will spend a, you know, a good number of uh, years left uh, being a prophet in, in Israel. And then um, his time will be at an end. And similar to Elijah has a very similar ministry to John the Baptist, yeah. where John the, Ma- John the Baptist is on the scene powerfully, but only for a short while. And Eli- uh, John the Baptist's ministry is not, um, is not the big show. Uh, Jesus's ministry is the big show. And Elijah, uh, Elijah, like John the Baptist, is there to really bring Elisha onto the scene. And I think, you know, for the most part, when I was a kid, I learned way more about Elijah than I ever did about Elisha. And Elisha is actually the far more powerful of the prophets, you know, to come. And Second Kings is the, almost the whole book is going to have Elisha in it, or at least three quarters of the book is going to have Elisha in it, you know, where he's, he's a significant prophet. And um, I think Elijah's ministry kind of has that huge bang on Mount Carmel. And I think his purpose is to inaugurate God's extreme discipline against the Northern Kingdom. And so, the, but part of the reason I say that, Doug, and part of the reason I'm persuaded against seeing Elijah, okay, most people, I think most, most preachers are going are gonna to tell you Elijah is a really good prophet, right? Because he's a prophet, but we sort of kind of preach him like he's a dog a little bit. Uh, like, uh, yeah, he's good, but uh, look what he does here in chapter 19. I don't see that anywhere in the text. We infer a lot of that stuff. We, we look at it and we read it with a certain tone. And we imply the tone. It's like when you get a text message from your friend and you read and you're like you've had an argument in the past and they say something and you read it snarkily, you know, like because that's the way you think they intended it is snarky. Well, I think we read because we see him being fearful that Jezebel is going to kill him and fleeing. We read the snark in the text of him, you know, passing out under the shade tree or, or going up to the mountain. But I don't think that's the way we should read it because God never comes down with a reprimand on Elijah at all and never, never judges him for any of that kind of stuff. And I've read commentary after commentary of people that, that will make that argument that he, he's on top of the mountain and God tells him, what are you doing here, Elijah? You shouldn't be here. Go back up north. And that's not what happens. And that's not the way Paul even understands what happens. 
Paul takes what happens as Elijah is pleading a case to God as a prophet against the nation of Israel. And God, far from reprimanding him, actually agrees with him and goes and does it and tells him the path forward. And that path leads years past Elijah's life even. Those two kings are not anointed until the first one in 2 Kings 5, I think, and the other one in 2 Kings 9, maybe. And so, but, but don't you see that the weaknesses of these prophets and their human frailty and bring out the glory of God? Uh, like, yeah. for example, you're right. I mean, John the Baptist, they thought he had come in the spirit of Elijah and Jesus says he did. And, and so, but he had a time when he was in prison and he had pointed to Jesus as the Messiah yeah. and he had doubts. Yeah. And, and Elijah had weaknesses, but it only sure. points that doesn't matter for humankind, we're all frail and, and weak. And there's no doubt that Elijah's fear is unfounded. And he shouldn't, he shouldn't, there's no doubt about that. And, um, and especially with the way the threat comes, I think it's lightened with irony. And I think we should be able to say, you know, Elijah uh, shouldn't be, has no reason to be fearful of Jezebel here. But at the same time, notice in the text never tells us that God has, takes a, takes a, a quibble has a quibble with Elijah. And I don't think that we should teach that because that's not what the Bible actually says. And the reason that I think that that's important is because it shifts the actual meaning of the text and it shifts what we actually understand from the text. If we say, well, Elijah is mistaken here and he's, he's sort of in sin, even if we don't really say that, we kind of put brackets, right? You know, he's in sin, he's fearful. And that's the reason he's run down there and God is correcting him and, and maybe encouraging him. Um, the meaning shifts to you too should be um, should be confident in you know the Lord and you shouldn't be fearful of your enemies. Whereas in reality, you should be confident about God's plan of salvation for His people, because that's what God reassures is that even in judgment, God will always save His people, even when things are absolutely miserable and terrible and awful. God will still save his people. That's what's reiterated to us over and over in the text. And that's the point of that whole passage is, is that there, there not only is a remnant that God is saving in Israel, but he's about to lay waste to the entire northern kingdom. And yet, in spite of all of that, some of his people will actually still come to salvation. I mean, I think about all the times, the, the 90s, youth group that I was in where they were like hand motions to praise songs and the cheesiest experience of worship you could ever imagine. And yet God saved people in spite of all of that. Just uh, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, just get in a time machine and go back to nineties youth group. And you will see there's people that come to salvation, even in the midst of this. And, and so I think it's a testimony. This whole chapter is really preaching that message. It's not drastically different from the point, but it is significantly different, at least enough different, that I think it, it sort of shifts the meaning a little bit. And I think we should only do that where we have warrant in the text to actually do that. The fact that Elijah is never reprimanded, that God agrees with him and moves, and that Paul actually affirms that this is what Elijah is doing down at Mount Sinai, I think is significant. And I think, that's, I think it's important that we understand that. Okay, we have... Just a minute, so if there's anything else. All right, let's pray, and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity uh, to look at your word, to study it uh, deeply, to uh, think about it, to wrestle with questions, and to think through uh, interpretations of the text. What, what a joy and a privilege that is, and it's so fun to do, and enjoyable, and uh, I pray that uh, we leave here with um, our hearts, right? And all of this, trying to wrestle with the text and understand it, it is for naught if our hearts are not opened to obey and only you can do that. And I pray that you would, that you would uh, continue to reiterate your word to us time and time again when things look incredibly bleak and when we are tempted to despair you still are working. And even when things around us in our nation, things look terrible sometimes. 
dark and bleak and, and really just kind of awful. And, and yet, even in the midst of such radical atheism growing in our country, you're still saving your people. And that we can still confidently preach the gospel and that we can confidently say 2,000 years ago, um, the God-man Jesus rose from the dead. We, we can stand on that with authority and confidence and trust that you are still saving your people in the midst of all of that. Um, so I pray that we would do that with confidence and with boldness. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.